0: I am the common man. I am the fool, the despised. I am the brute and the slave. I am the tool in the eyes, from the cradle to the grave, from the cradle to the grave. Born to bear and to toil, born to bear and to toil, I am the common man. but. Masters of mine, take heed, for you have put into my head many wicked deeds. Original Poem by Joe Corey Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello everyone, and welcome to Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Episode 6, The Class System. Last time we looked at Scandinavia in 1300, but today we're going to take a pause from our walking tour, to begin looking at the forces that defined daily life for the people in the Middle Ages. Before we do, however, we have some housekeeping. Firstly, I should thank Dr. Susan Taylor for doing the introduction. She's my mom, and I should probably thank her for some other things, but uh, we'll stop at the introduction for now. She's actually a tutor, and her website can be found at oneononetutor1.net. She has a PhD in English, and her husband, Alan, has a PhD in laser physics, so between the two of them, they'll learn you pretty good. If anyone out there has a need for SAT tutoring or any other kind of Uh, tutoring. They do work over Skype or any other online platform that you like, so I'd encourage you to check them out. Now, as some of you are probably aware, I'm working on setting up the website. It's going to have maps for each episode of The Walking Tour and blog entries for each episode. There will be links to social media, a bibliography, ways to contact me, and eventually a donation button, but more on that when it happens. For now, please check it out at wittenbergtowestphaliapodcast.weebly.com and tell me what you think, and if anything is missing. More broadly, any feedback you can provide on the website or the podcast, or anything really, will be most appreciated. I've joked around about this in previous episodes, but really, I'd love to know how I'm doing and if there are ways I can improve. Blogs and podcasts and any of this kind of iterative thing... Take a lot of discipline and effort to keep up, especially at a high level, and it can be tough to just send things out into the void with no response. So please, let me know what you think. A few people have asked when I'm going to be getting on iTunes or another podcasting platform. The answer is soon. I was originally thinking of doing it after five episodes, then later on ten, in order to make myself look better in iTunes whenever I get on there. But I'm thinking that now, whenever my website is up to a point where I'm happy, I'll start the process. So probably sometime within the next few episodes. Keep an eye on the website or the Facebook page for more information on that. Speaking of the Facebook page, I have now changed the Facebook page. If you've already liked it, it probably won't be that big a deal. But if you haven't liked it yet, possibly because you haven't been able to find it, it now actually is a Facebook page for Wittenberg to Westphalia. Before, it was 30 Years War Podcast, which reflected the fact that I had set up the Facebook page back when this was all just a Kickstarter idea and I didn't have a title yet. So, Wittenberg to Westphalia on Facebook. So, today we will be discussing the class system in the European Middle Ages. Social class has been a key feature of society since the dawn of civilization, and every society has had a different way of constructing and framing the system. The Romans had their Patricians and Publians, India has the Jati, or caste system, and the European Middle Ages had their own class system. These systems had a direct impact on the daily life of their members, because they were deeply ingrained into the cultural values of their societies, and often codified into law. For us in the developed West, in the modern day, classes become something we often talk about only academically, and some people deny it is even worthy of discussion at this point. The two main intellectual threads of mid-twentieth century political thought, democracy and communism, both to some extent made a claim to have eliminated class as a factor in their societies. In retrospect, most will agree that communism only created a new class system, but the picture in the democratic West is still the subject of intense debate. Academics and many in the public sphere talk about a three-tier class system, with a lower, middle, and upper class some in the modern political environment insist that class is no longer a valid topic for discussion. Many in our daily lives would claim not to be directly affected by class, as the markers for class in the past have been eliminated by the implosion of the relative price of basic necessities like clothes and food, and the homogenization of culture due to mass media. In other words, the old markers for differing class, such as having someone be starving or having bad clothes are no longer so obvious. And yet all of us have a hard time understanding classes that existed in the Middle Ages, because at a fundamental level it was codified and conceptualized in a radically different way from the way that we do think of class. So before we talk about medieval class, we need to talk about how we think of class, so I can point out how medieval class structure was different. The ultimate culprit in our inability to conceptualize medieval class was Karl Marx. The model of class system he articulated in Das Kapital, with a few simple classes sitting on a vertically stratified pyramid, has been so convincing and has been repeated so many times that it has completely reshaped the way we view class. This vision of class holds that classes differ based on their ability to control the means of production. So you had the old aristocracy, in the bad old days of feudalism, which held land, while the bourgeoisie held capital, in terms of money or machinery, and the proletariat held the labor needed to make things happen with the other two. Marx held that the bourgeoisie had destroyed the political and economic power of the aristocracy, but still needed the proletariat in order to operate its machinery. According to Marx, the final class struggle would be between the workers and the bosses, or the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. This view has some pretty attractive features, but ultimately is a pretty flawed way to view society, history, and, heck, the economy. Marxism has always portrayed capitalism as something from a Charles Dickens novel, and while sweatshops and industrial child labor still exist on a far larger scale than we ought to be comfortable with, it is not the defining feature of daily life for the vast majority of the participants in the modern economy, even poor ones, and even in the developing world. A much more complex view of class was provided by Max Weber, one of the founding lights of modern sociology. Weber was the first to describe the social hierarchy as consisting of an upper, middle, and lower class, as opposed to the aristocracy, bourgeoisie, and proletariat. Within his system, the upper class are the most wealthy and control the means of production, giving them access to political power. The middle class have less money and may be office workers, managers, or small business owners. The lower class are the poorest and may be blue-collar laborers. This is generally speaking how most of us conceptualize the class system, but Weber's conception was far more complex than just this picture. This concept, as most of us understand it, would seem to imply a certain amount of occupational determinism, where what you do for a living determines your class. This wasn't Weber's intention. For Weber, the pyramid was more like a map and the real class structure was based on a coordinate system consisting of earnings, social status, and political power that were used to determine where an individual fell on the pyramid. So, in other words, the President of the United States doesn't get an especially large salary. It's way more than I earn, but one doesn't become president to get rich. There's other better ways to get rich. One becomes president in order to have the status of being president and for the power to impose your will on others. That's why the president is in the upper class, because of the extreme amounts of status and power that he gets. A plumber, on the other hand, makes a pretty good salary these days, and if he's an active participant in his union, he might have a lot of political power. But by that same token, he won't have an awful lot of status, given that he spends most of his time elbow deep in broken toilets. No offense to the plumbers out there. Obviously, Weber was heavily influenced by Marx, and worked to give a more rigorous intellectual structure to the class system that Marx had briefly discussed in his works. This is not to say that all discussion of stratified class is a communist exercise. Far from it. Weber gave us a very powerful tool for understanding our modern society. But he was not writing about the Middle Ages, and for those alive in the Middle Ages, this conception of class would have been entirely alien. So how did they conceptualize society? How did they live? If you ask the average man on the street, or woman in the office, or history textbook, they will tell you about feudalism. Or they will try. Most definitions are pretty diffuse. Marx helpfully included his definition involving the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat but i will probably not be surprising anyone if i tell them that none of those terms were really in use during the middle ages and that marx's image of medieval social structure would be as alien to the thirteenth century peasant as the wabarian one i might surprise a few more of you if i told you that the very term feudalism is not a medieval term the word was coined first at the end of the early modern period as a pejorative term for anything that was felt to be old and arcane This usage reached a high point during the French Revolution when anything feudal was being busily destroyed without anyone really defining what the term meant. As the world became engulfed by war and intellectual ferment, the term became widespread, but as the 19th century came and feudalism was generally agreed to no longer be a going concern, it suddenly became important to define it. This was a time when all intellectual movements were attempting to become more scientific, and the study of history was no exception. As the German empiricist school began a more systematic study of history, it was suddenly important to find a way to define this term that was in such popular usage, since not doing so would make some of the more dramatic events of the previous hundred years almost inexplicable. What were the citizens of Paris revolting against? Not sure. Hard to say. So definitions were made, and as different schools of history developed over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, definitions proliferated. According to Norman F. Cantor's History of Civilization in the Middle Ages, the current form of this debate runs essentially three ways. The empiricist school defines feudalism only in terms of politics and law, while the French Annales school defines it more broadly in terms of politics, culture, and economics. The third viewpoint, espoused most prominently by the American post-structuralists, would be that they should have just jettisoned the word entirely, that it's entirely made up and not really useful. Personally, I do find feudalism to be a useful term, if only to help modern people with our Weberian mindset understand what was going on. So I am going to provide a definition, but I'm going to warn you now you might want to get out a pen because this is going to be a little bit technical. For me, feudalism is any political or legal system based on the possession of land in return for military service. So far, so simple. You will note that this definition is broad enough to work with many systems throughout history, from samurai-era Japan to significant portions of the developing world today. For our purposes, this term needs to be narrowed a bit, so when I'm talking about the political, economic, and cultural institutions that developed in Europe between the rise of Emperor Diocletian of Rome and the death of Louis XIV of France, I will refer to it as European feudalism. This definition allows me to discuss things that went along with the political and legal system as it developed in Europe, which would have huge impacts for our story. Things like the way the economy functioned, the way society and culture functioned, the way religion functioned. So, European feudalism is not just a political or legal system, but an entire set of cultural institutions that are heavily located in time. Politically, European feudalism was defined by lordship and manorialism, Lordship was a complex series of loyalty bonds between nobles, whereby a superior noble would give land to an inferior noble in return for military service. How this functioned on a daily basis will be examined in a later episode on the nobility. Manorialism was a similarly complex arrangement, whereby a landowner maintained peace and gave the peasants access to economic and political capital in return for goods and services. The peasants, also called serfs, were legally and culturally tied to the manner in which they lived, and weren't allowed to leave. Again, how this functioned on the daily will be the subject of a future episode on the peasantry. So, broadly speaking, European feudalism was a system in which a noble superior would grant land to a noble inferior in the form of a manor, in return for military service. The manor would come with the peasants who lived there and the lord of the manor would maintain social order in return for goods and services. So this governed land ownership, military service, and the provision of goods and services within a hierarchy based on loyalty and multi-directional obligations. There are three things you need to understand about this system. First is its flexibility. For the most part, the Middle Ages was a time of agrarian economy, but there is ample evidence of manorial and feudal relationships existing in situations where the primary economic good was fishing, hunting, or mining. This provides an important parallel to other feudal structures outside of Europe. Most have been agrarian, but anywhere that a primary natural resource is being scraped from the land by an unskilled collective labor force, the formula can apply. The best modern examples are seen in areas of instability in the developing world, where warlords control access to high-value primary goods like rare earth minerals, diamonds, or oil. Second, European feudalism provides much of the structural underpinning of society in the Middle Ages, and as such, it is intimately tied to that time period. Its rise predates the time period, but for students of history, this rise heralds the end of the empires of the ancient world, and heralds the rise of the Middle Ages. Similarly, the fall of these structures is the story of the end of the Middle Ages, and as such is the story of the early modern period. Thirdly, and returning to our earlier theme, feudalism is a construction of the modern era. Its definitions were ultimately influenced by post-Marxist worldviews, and as such would not have been the way people at the time would have seen their condition. The structures of lordship and manorialism did exist and would have been familiar, but they were conceptualized under a completely different framework, the tripartite class system, about which more in a second. For the people in the Middle Ages, feudalism as I have outlined it would have definitely been alien and probably would have been offensive. So let's talk about the tripartite class system, the thing that people in the Middle Ages would have been familiar with. The tripartite class system was based entirely on non-hierarchical social status in a kind of rock-paper-scissors-type equilibrium, where the nobility kept peace and security, the clergy provided a moral conscience for society, and the peasantry produced goods and services needed by all. In other words, there were those who fought, those who prayed, and those who worked. Theoretically, no group was actually superior as a group, Everyone knew that they had a place and felt that they contributed to society, and in return society would take care of them as best it could. This may seem absurdly naive to a modern observer, and in fact it was much more theoretical than practical, but it had a deep impact on both the self-image of those living in medieval society and on the laws that structured its functioning. The institutions we have described within feudalism, lordship, and manorialism are both contained within the structure. Lordship, for example, is a hierarchy applied only to the nobility, while manorialism applies mostly to the peasantry, although with a noble on top. The clergy had their own hierarchy, based on the corporate structure of the church, that operated independently of the other two structures. Definitions of the Middle Ages that revolve around feudalism have to take the clergy and kind of cram it into the pyramid and lace it through the entire thing. So if we're looking for a Weberian structure for the medieval class system, you can talk about feudalism, where the nobility are on top with their lordship hierarchy, which flowed down to the peasantry with their manorial hierarchy, and the church kind of laced through the whole thing. Those alive at the time would have taken those same parts and conceived of them as the tripartite class system, with the three separate hierarchies standing as separate pillars of society. How this system developed is the subject of a debate so heated that some of my sources simply refuse to engage. Records from the early Middle Ages are often non-existent, and even in late antiquity, before the fall of the Roman Empire, the literati of the senatorial class were only rarely moved to write about the life of the poor. So reconstructing the social changes between the Empire and the Middle Ages is, in short, a complex and frustrating process. Nonetheless, I think it is important to discuss at least the bones of how we went from late antiquity to feudalism, and then eventually we will get to the early modern period. Almost all parties agree that the beginning of European feudalism lies in the Roman Empire. We know that Emperor Diocletian instituted a series of laws that tied farmers to their land, and we know that much of the farming being done during the Roman Empire was being done on massive slave plantations run out of the villas of wealthy landowners. It's not too much of a stretch to see how the demographic collapses at the end of the Roman Empire would have merged these two classes of laborers, the free poor farmers and the slaves on the slave plantations. The Latin Church, of course, ultimately derives its structure from the Church of the Latin Empire. Though it began its evolution earlier, under the Emperor Constantine, it began to be rigidly structured. And though many of the names changed, the basic corporate structure of the Church in many ways persists to the modern day, with a centralized hierarchy, regional control vested in the bishops, and local activities being done by priests. The event that set the evolution of feudalism into high gear was the barbarian invasions, and the way things worked is going to require a brief summary of the fall of the Roman Empire and the events of the early Middle Ages. From the beginning, the empire would supplement its military with hired soldiers from outside. This went on for multiple centuries without a hitch, because the empire would generally deploy the new hires on the opposite side of the empire from their place of origin. They would usually put them under roman officers and with the families and political structure of the groups from which they came dispersed in various widely separated internal settlements within the empire a number of factors contributed to the fall of the roman empire and i'm not going to get into an exhaustive study of this but there were a number of political factors uh, affecting the coherence of the empire and its ability to respond to things Uh, externally contact with Rome made the barbarian peoples beyond its borders uh, more and more powerful as they adopted Roman institutions and technologies. As more and more pressure built on the borders of the Empire, and the Empire was progressively less able to respond effectively, they started to take shortcuts with how they dealt with their barbarian mercenaries, until in the end the Empire was simply allying itself with a particularly powerful barbarian king, declaring them to be generals, giving their men a generous salary and benefits package, bringing their families just over the border, and telling the king and his tribe to turn around and fight the next tribe over. Eventually, of course, the center could not hold, and the barbarian king stopped listening to orders from Rome. In this process, the empire fell, but the way this impacted the social order depended heavily on where you were. For our story, and for our purposes, the interesting stuff happened in the middle of what we think of as Western Europe. The Rhine and Danube rivers had been the main frontiers of the empire, with the tribes on the far side becoming relatively highly Romanized through the intensive trade and social contacts. Now, they didn't speak Latin or anything, but they did learn farming techniques, they became incorporated into international trade networks, they began valuing money and Roman trade goods, things like that. Within a hundred miles or so of the Rhine River, the process of German settlement under the guise of the Roman military, uh, repeated raids, and the general collapse of order meant that the Latin population had largely gone by the early Middle Ages. In fact, this area is largely native German-speaking to this day. But in other areas, the German kings had neither the manpower nor the desire to ethnically cleanse the land of Latin citizens. The goal for most of these men had, after all, been getting that sweet Roman salary and benefits package. And so they tried to set themselves up with the same powers and benefits that they would have gotten from Rome, essentially taking the place of the Roman military government. The Germanic kings and their retainers and tribe and families gradually integrated themselves into the Latin political structure to the best of their ability. The kings called their most trusted generals dux, an old Roman military term that gradually evolved into the modern word duke. They also took control of the old Roman tax farming system, whereby an individual would be given a position where they had the right to demand taxes from people in their region, and had a duty to turn over a certain amount of the taxes to the state, and the difference between what they collected and what they turned over was their salary. If the Germanic invasions had been the only issue confronting the empire, it is possible that the early Middle Ages, often called the Dark Ages, would not have been quite so dark. But unfortunately, the empire was confronting demographic and economic collapse due to forces far beyond its ken. Of course, for people in the ancient world, the germ theory was alien, and so the repeated plagues that devastated the empire, consisting of everything from bubonic plague to smallpox, seemed to come out of nowhere. The fiscal policy of even the good emperors like Diocletian left an awful lot to be desired, and resulted in the total debasement of the currency, leading to massive inflation. Of course, they didn't realize that printing more money would cause inflation, because they hadn't had Adam Smith yet. As the Germanic kings progressively invaded, these issues became critical problems, not just for the empire, but for the entire society of the West. Without a solid economic basis and being somewhat inexperienced in government, the kings failed to maintain the infrastructure critical to Roman urban life, such as roads, aqueducts, and baths, leaving cities full of undernourished, unhygienic populations, thus reinforcing the plague issue. As far as the economy was concerned, it was already in a state of near-constant crisis due to the debasement of the currency. The collapse of the political order meant that the Roman fleet disappeared, and piracy revived, just as brigands and raiding parties made the highways insecure. When the barbarian kings entered the mix, things got worse as the different components of the Mediterranean trade network were lopped away into competing political entities. It is very possible to overstate these issues. Trade did happen, the networks persisted, not everyone fled the cities, and the entire population of the west was not replaced wholesale. But at the same time we have solid evidence of demographic shrink of narrowing economic horizons and behind it all a silence in the records that stands as testimony to widespread human misery it is in this context that historians talk of the social isolation of the early middle ages and it was in this context that much of the society of the middle ages was forged with roman ruins and the trade networks in disrepair life became very local and very intimate For most people, their entire lives were spent in their village, and the forests surrounding became a place of terror. The only authority to turn to for the maintenance of law and order was whomever in the area was wealthy enough to hire their own bodyguards. Local Roman landlords had already amassed a fair amount of political responsibility before the fall, and now they became political authorities unto themselves they were able to gain the support of the local populace by providing some semblance of law and order and, when possible, protection from outside raids. Of course, as the only political authority in a given area, their civic virtue can be expected to have involved expanded rights for themselves at the expense of their grateful public. At the same time, the demographic pressures on society and the isolation from the outside world meant that these landlords were wholly dependent on locally available labor for the productivity of their land. When they arrived, the Germanic invaders would have had to deal with these fledgling power structures. In many cases, everyone just woke up one day to find that there was a hairy German living in the landlord's house, wearing his clothes, and ordering his people around like he owned the place, and are you saying no? I have trouble with your silly Latin accent, but I'm pretty sure you didn't say no. Let me ask my axe. Hey axe, did he say no? That's what I thought. On the other hand, as I have said, the German invaders were really more interested in skimming money from Roman civilization and not destroying it. There's a large amount of evidence of them being very happy to take protection money in lieu of murder. Protection money is way easier to get if you keep the elites alive to raise it via taxation, and if everyone is living in the same area, raising taxes together and paying the army year after year, Gradually they start to mingle, marriage alliances are formed, and soon the line between Latin elites and Germanic invaders starts to blur. During this time, the church would have been staffed by the scions of the Latin elite. During times when the secular authorities often fled the barbarian menace, the church often saw itself as the natural leader of the flock. Bishops are often seen in records attempting to persuade the invaders to spare the lives of their congregants. In the wake of the Germanic takeover, members of the church continued their role as mediator between the Latin flock and the new militant secular authorities, while simultaneously trying to persuade them of the value of Christianity and Roman civilization. As this social form was gradually evolving, the major political event of the Middle Ages occurred a group of germans known as the franks expanded from their home region around the mouths of the rhine both south along the east bank of the rhine and into germany and west along the channel coast of greater france and then down into france proper thus forming a rough crescent with the curve of the crescent touching on the channel coast and the two points facing south This process started while the Roman Empire was still a going concern, under the guise of the Franks serving as mercenaries and allies, so that by the time of the empire's fall, they were poised to become one of the more powerful tribes. This was given a boost when King Clovis converted to Christianity, allowing a more intensive integration with the local landowners. Though generations of political turmoil followed, eventually a king of the Franks would rise to power known as Charles the Great, or Charlemagne. We have discussed the empire of Charles in passing, which is a disservice. Indeed, an entire podcast series could be dedicated to the impact of Charles' empire. In a way, any podcast on European history is an aspect of Charles' legacy, as no single individual did as much to create the European consciousness. Of course, Charles did not set out to do this, he just wanted an empire. But the strengths and weaknesses of the thing he made would last down to the modern era. In brief, Charles' empire embraced all the core areas of Europe. Greater France, with parts of Spain in the Pyrenees, all of northern Italy and Switzerland, and Germany, up to an arc of land starting at the eastern base of Jutland, which we discussed last time, and arcing down into modern Croatia. Much of this area had been nominally conquered already when Charlemagne assumed the throne, and so Charles inherited a large amount of social infrastructure. Certainly the core areas of central and northern France, the Low Countries, and northeastern Germany spent quite a long time under Frankish rule, which would have given plenty of time for a somewhat coherent social structure to form. The region of Saxony, which was conquered by Charlemagne, was essentially ethnically cleansed by him and resettled by him and his successors. All the areas taken by Charles were converted to Christianity and placed under the rule of his generals, who were given the ability to raise supplies and taxes from their holdings in return for providing men at military need. In other words, If feudalism has a single starting point and i'm not saying it does but if it did it would be here in the frankish kingdom the embryonic manorialism that had probably already arisen in latin territories had proven a lucrative and stable way to control land at a local level and extract wealth in an era of anemic trade and heavy military need The old Roman political infrastructure of tax-farming by regional political figures had combined with the German system of loyalty bonds to create an organizational scheme of regional control by armed retainers who came at call to serve the king in return for land. The church became a vital part of the empire's apparatus. As the only source of educated, competent men, churchmen became key advisors to the king and served vital administrative roles. The importance of this was clearly appreciated by Charles, who had church schools created at his court and around the empire. As Charles' empire building projects served to spread Christianity and defend the church from non-Christians, or heretical tribes, the church hierarchy became boosters of the new empire, further cementing the integration of Latin and Germanic power structures and bringing the rural peasantry on board with the new social order. So feudalism was something like Frankenstein's monster, cobbled together from various parts from various different places and times, based on what still functioned. But it needed a final spark to give it a life of its own, and this came from the twin metal bolts on its neck of political disillusion and Viking invasion. See, after Charles died, his son was weak, and his grandsons began trying to take the empire for themselves. As they scrambled to try to get the loyalty of the Frankish nobility of the empire, the Vikings began their raids. The nobility demanded the right to inherit their titles and fortify their lands against invaders, both of which had previously been expressly outlawed by Charles. The feuding brothers and their sons granted these things in an attempt to gain loyalty and to turn back the Vikings. The various brothers did eventually gain some loyalty and did turn back the Vikings, but at the expense of making each major noble's domain in effect a separate country with its own internal hereditary power structure and a zone of fortifications allowing it to flout the commands of the king. Eventually the eastern and central portions of the empire went with one of Charles' grandsons, who agreed to be elected king according to an old Saxon custom. But the western portions gradually became fed up with all the descendants of Charles. I mentioned in the episode on Greater France how Louis the Simple had given away Normandy to Viking raiders. This act was simply the last straw. The Western Frankish nobility cast around for someone, anyone, to replace this dimwit and found Hugh Capet, the Duke of Paris, waiting on top of a big pile of money and surrounded by a competent military that had recently sent a Viking raiding party heading for their boats. And so Hugh Capet would become the first member of the French monarchy, although at this point it was still called Western Francia. By this point, the majority of what we would call feudalism was in place, and the rest of the Middle Ages would be spent dealing with its consequences. On both sides of the Rhine, the monarchs would struggle to impose central authority on a nobility that was often able to resist these advances both militarily and politically. Christianity, in the form of the Church, represented the only cultural establishment, and worked to establish a new Christian version of Roman civilization in this new context. The rural poor found their station merged with that of the Roman slaves, but lived largely self-sufficient lives under the protection of the local manor. What is amazing is that such a complex monster of a social order was found to really suit the circumstances of this new world to the point that it began expanding at the expense of other systems. In Spain, as we have seen, there were initial setbacks, but Christian feudalism gradually expanded at the expense of the Islamic states over the course of the Middle Ages. It is no coincidence that the Christian states that began this expansion were founded in territory briefly conquered by Charlemagne. The biggest source of growth for feudalism was Germany. German migrants and missionaries brought a form of feudalism to Scandinavia, although the poor there were never as tightly controlled as they were further south. Once the Holy Roman Empire recovered from the shock of western Francia splitting off, it was able to expand to the east, to the Oder River and the Danube River, and German settlers followed this political expansion into the thinly peopled areas there. As these regions became progressively more wealthy, the nobility of the regions even further east began inviting Germans, both common and noble, to establish settlements in their territories as well. And so Germans moved into Eastern Europe proper, establishing a thick belt of settlement along the Baltic coast and making significant contributions to the populations of every country west of Kiev. In the wake of this settlement came feudalism, as Germans poor and noble alike expected it to be so. And so it was that this European feudal social order, with its strong lines of descent from the Roman Empire, and its moral justifications relying on Latin Christianity, came to dominate areas that lay far beyond the old Rhine frontier. If all this sounds like a very broad stroke outline with a troubling lack of detailed evidence, it is. I'm going to be filling in the spaces in future episodes, but just for now let's review what we've covered. Today we started off talking about class systems, particularly how we conceive of it now versus how it would have been conceived in the Middle Ages. We touched on Marx and Weber, and then discussed how feudalism is a modern construct, and how most definitions rely on a modern, hierarchical view of society. By contrast, we talked about the tripartite division of class, with the nobility, the peasantry, and the clergy having their own separate hierarchies, in a kind of rock-paper-scissor equilibrium. Finally, I gave a brief overview of how the medieval social order came to be, with its roots in the local Roman social order, which merged with the invading Germanic culture, and how the clergy saw its role in this new social climate. We saw the rise and fall of the Frankish Empire, and how it served to spread the embryonic European feudalism far beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire, from Portugal to Kiev. So we can see that the different component parts of the social order of the Middle Ages evolved separately, And that makes the tripartite social structure more than just a piece of naïve idealism. Though these structures would come to support each other, they evolved separately and had their own goals and aspirations. Examining the character of these institutions is going to be the work of the next three Society episodes. But for now, it is appropriate that we leave our story at Kiev, as we will begin next time in Kiev as a group of Slavicized Vikings take control of their portion of the Viking trade network and establish a political entity known as Kievan Rus. So, next time, we will return to our walking tour with a look at Russia. Let's say three weeks on that, because I do want to work on the website quite a bit in the next couple of weeks, and because I haven't started writing that episode yet. So, thanks for listening, uh, thanks to Not Surf and thanks to Susan Taylor. Check out her website, and see you next time.